0: Hello and welcome to MEPCAST, a podcast for maternity education program of Clinical Skills Development Service. In each episode, we explore ideas and issues on how we can enhance and improve the delivery of maternity care education.
1: Hello and welcome to Queensland Health Clinical Skills Development Service maternity education program podcast, MEPCAST. My name is Sue Hampton. I'm your host today. I am the midwifery educator here at CSDS and I am a registered nurse and midwife with over 40 years of experience in healthcare. We've developed this series of podcasts in relation to clinical situations and clinical experiences aimed at healthcare providers in the maternity setting. Today I'm going to be discussing how to keep labour and birth normal and I've got a great colleague with me today, Angela Swift, who I've worked with over the last few years and working at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. Thanks for joining us today, Angie. It's great. A pleasure to be here. Sue, would you mind just uh, introducing yourself, really, to the the listeners, uh, a little bit about your previous experience would be great
0: Um, yeah okay well I trained in the UK I was one of the first um, students in the direct entry program there in uh, 1992 so I've been qualified now for 25 years I've worked in all aspects of maternity care in the um, hospital setting. But in the last seven years, really, I've concentrated my career around continuity models. So I was part of the development and rollout of the Naramar Midwifery Group practice here at um, the Royal Brisbane Women's Hospital which is for Indigenous families. I then went to far north Queensland and developed a midwifery group practice that was outside of the hospital setting. So it was in a country hospital, but women transferred to Cairns to birth. Then I've had a little stint on Thursday Island in midwifery group practice up there. And then I've come back to work in the birth centre here at the RBWH. And I've been here a couple of years now.
1: Well, it's great to have you back, I have to say. We did miss you while you were gone. Thank
0: you. Missed you guys too. Great. So over the past
1: few years, there's been noticeably an increase in intervention during pregnancy, labour and birth for lots of reasons. I think our acuity is rising with our women. And obviously the results of new evidence have showed that we've got increased induction rates happening because of what we're doing. Um... What I've experienced is the reduced number of normal presentations and pregnancies and births. And in fact, we celebrate the normal labours now, which I feel quite sad about. How, how can midwives maintain some normality for the consumers of our care,
0: with even with some of these high-risk births for their pregnancies and their labours? I mean, I strongly feel that women should always be at the um, centre of the decision-making about their care and ensuring women that understand their rights as a consumer that they're aware of what they should be expecting in relation to involvement in decision making is really, really important. I think, and a lot of women, I feel, just go along with whatever the you know whatever they're recommended to do without really being truly informed about the risks and the benefits. So it's very easy, you know, when we're in a medical model, for women to be recommended induction of labour for all sorts of reasons and them just go along with it rather than looking at the pros and cons of waiting whether there's some alternative to going in going for an induction for example or they very rarely ask the question well what if we do nothing and we just wait and see what happens you know are there options for additional monitoring and stuff like that to ensure the well-being of the mother and baby rather than just go for that induction at 38 39 weeks so Um, in
1: your practice how do you manage to weave that in giving women good advice around that because i think that's where we maybe don't do such a good job in the antenatal period so how do you manage to do that
0: well i look when you when women enter a continuity model they have a primary carer and certainly in the birth center and definitely in my team from the outset before we even book them in and take them on we have a conversation about what the expectation is you know we don't Direct women to like education classes or anything like that. We encourage them to read around what. They want for their birth. If they want a natural birth, read around that subject and come back to us with what they want to do, whether that's hypnobirthing, calm birthing, whether they're into meditation, yoga, all these things that will um, enable them to be in control of their bodies, what's happening to them, grow their confidence as mothers, and believe in themselves to be able to birth their babies. I think that's like a huge thing for women to believe in themselves, you know, that they are able to. To do this without intervention and without having to do anything other than just be women.
1: The interesting thing is you've mentioned your continuity of care model mm. and you obviously work in the birth centre, which is a low risk model. How do you think we can give all women access to continuity of care even when they're in that high risk situation because often they're the women i think we kind of miss out the good continuity
0: yeah well i mean i've worked in all risk mgps with very high risk cases and just having that one person that they can go to makes a huge difference even when there's like involvement of multiple other specialties in their care having that one person that can coordinate it or bring it all together explain things to them take time out to have Discussions with them about what their wants are and then their particular needs are, I think, goes a real long way in building their confidence and making them feel that they're in control and they've got some say over what is happening to them. I would really love to see more midwifery group practices that are specialists. So, specializing, say, for example, in women who have drug and alcohol problems, maybe like social issues. Certainly for women who have uh, language difficulties, you know, if we had just a little group of midwives that had a real good um, relationship with all the interpreters and, you know, could just set set up all of uh, their whole care through that one interpreter with one midwife, I think would make a, a huge difference to outcomes. These are the groups of women that have the poorest outcomes you know for themselves and also for their babies we know we absolutely know that having a continuity with a a small team of midwives or one midwife will reduce the risk of stillbirth by about 14 percent you know they're less likely to go to the neonatal unit they're less likely to need an epidural more likely to um, have a spontaneous vaginal birth all of these things we're we're seeing become less and less in in the mainstream in you know standard care models have about a 10 percent sense there's their rate in the birth centre and I know that's the low-risk women but we have an awful lot of first-time mothers and it's still that low. You mentioned the Naramar MGP yeah. that you worked in, and I think that
1: gives you some comparisons, really. Mm. Which you had some high risk cases in, in that group, didn't you? We absolutely did. So, thinking back, and I know it's a few years since you did that. Mm. Can you can you remember some of the differences you made to the outcomes for um, those women?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, it, we won some awards with the round table for the model model of care for Naramar. and just within the two years that I worked there, we found that the outcomes for mums and babies were on par, if not better than for mainstream care for that group of women that was, you know, were previously having the the poorer outcomes and more likely to have premature births and special care. Two years in, we weren't seeing that at all. They were doing really well. So did you find with that model that those women tend to engage better
1: with the healthcare professionals? Because I think that's something that's often a, an issue, isn't there? In those yeah. narrow mar situations is that women actually don't engage or families don't engage. So did you find that that was one of the
0: benefits? Yeah, I mean, the women that chose to come to Maramar and it was open to all Indigenous families, whether it was the father, the mother, who identified it, it didn't matter, they were able to access it. And yeah, we found that the attendance was much better. You know, all of the women had five or more antenatal appointments that they attended. They were confident, you know, to come in because they know there'd be somebody there that knew them, that they cared about them. They didn't have to keep repeating their stories or going over past traumas or incidences um, that they might have done had they been in you know the, the standard care model um, so I think they just had greater confidence that they were going to be cared for in, in a culturally appropriate way and of course you know we work with the health workers and liaison officers and stuff at the hospital as well so now I think there's more midwives working in the team that identify as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander themselves which is ultimately what the aim was that it would become you know a very culturally appropriate place indigenous midwives in there as well that's a great job and i think Mm. there's
1: a lot of other units around certainly metro north that now provide that care which is Mm. fantastic and we need to build that even more and certainly your experience in far north queensland probably exposed to you to even more of that Mm. indigenous health care which has lots and lots of issues which um you have to understand to be able to work in it so having people who are In that culture, helps them to be part of that as well.
0: Yeah, and I think you know, in on Thursday Island and also in Mossman where I worked, once they knew that the community was aware that you know you're a trustworthy service, and you know word got out that you were okay. Actually, you weren't. You know, they they would come. You know, I would have women coming at five and six weeks pregnant to book in, and they might not they wouldn't have done that with their previous pregnancies. And that you know, in the long-term in pregnancy, it makes big impact into the outcomes for the babies. Again, you know, I was there about three years, but certainly by the end of that third year, we were not getting premature births before 34 weeks and they would have, you know, several a year prior to that yeah the outcomes that's amazing are really yeah, something really to be good. really proud of yeah
1: yeah i, I wanted to ask you a bit about assisting consumers and supporting consumers with difficult situations when they've got to make choices because i think in pregnancies but particularly for women who are not in those continuity models or don't have great support we do barrage them with lots of information particularly towards the end of pregnancy particularly around induction or mm. even cesarean section have you got an example you can give me about how you've supported somebody making choices Thank that has? Difficult,
0: yeah. Look, look, I do. How did you do it? One, yes. Right. So I do. I have one particularly that's always um, stuck in my mind, and it was kind of a bit of a, uh, a bit of a game changer for me as well. Because you know, we always, I think, as midwives, we always think getting that normal birth—that's the pinnacle. You know, getting the vaginal birth, pinnacle of, of you know, success for us. But this is a slightly, this is a slightly different story. But I had when I was working in all-risk MGP, I had a woman come to me, and she was really, just dis, still. Dist- Stress. three years on since her last baby she was a a cesarean section and she'd spent the last three years beating herself up basically about whether she'd made the right decision should she have given into the doctor's advice to have that caesar when she did and all you know lots and lots of questions she was in a continuity model back then but she went two weeks overdue was then induced which took time she got to three centimeters and she was so tired so exhausted she said her midwife had run out of hours there was no one that she knew to look after her the doctor came in and said oh you know we could just go for a caesar and and she went for one and she's always wondered she'd always wondered whether it was the wrong decision and could she have had that vaginal birth a natural birth that she'd really really wanted So, second time around, we had a good look at the notes and everything to see, you know, what was the problem, you know, was there a cause, was it, you know, okay to go for a vaginal birth after a Caesar? And yeah, there was no reason why she couldn't, got it, you know, consent and everything with the consultant. And we made a plan to avoid her going overdue from 38 weeks. We were going to do twice weekly membrane sweeping to hopefully so that she would labor because obviously she wasn't going to be a suitable candidate for induction this time around she was really happy with that so that's what we did and then I think she got to about turn plus five ruptured membranes came in clear light where it was all good started contracting I got called in in the morning to come in and take over her care and she was contracting really well she got fully dilated no pain relief she was ecstatic um, she starts pushing and she's pushing you know she's pushing for an hour half an hour to an hour and this head's not really coming any closer a fair bit of kappa is happening we have a bit of a chat with the consultant and decide that with her that to have an epidural so that she could have longer we could just wait we could wait for a bit of descent just see what happens she could continue to be pushing but rather than be exhausted she'd be you know she'd be able to concentrate on the pushing so i think we waited an hour started pushing again had another hour of pushing this baby still really didn't come down we're just getting more and more caput and it was a persistent op and this is what happened with the first baby as well Mm. so after it was about four hours the baby was always good obviously we were continuously monitoring at that point the heart rate was fine like was clear everything's good but this baby's just not coming despite Excellent effort on her part. So, you know, the consultant that came in again, and we had another chat about it. And, you know, really, there there was no way to go now. We really needed to go for a cesarean section. The head was still too high to do a vacuum or a forceps. And she was happy. She was like, okay, yeah, we're just going to have to do it. We've done everything. A partner was still like, could we have a little bit longer? But she's like, no, I think we're done now. We'll we'll just go. Anyway, she was awake, compass mentors and everything. They were all in there for the cesarean section. Of course, baby comes out with a massive head but it was fine and her recovery was good and when we debriefed afterwards she was just she said she was just so happy with the experience because she'd made all of those decisions herself she was confident that it was the right decision at the time and as far as she was concerned she'd done everything she'd wanted she'd labored naturally she'd done all the pushing everything that you do in a normal birth the only difference was that had to come out of the the, um, abdomen and it didn't come out out of the vagina and that was that was the difference but she found it so she just found it so healing and it then reassured her as well that the cesarean section she had the first time she could have done all of that and it would have still ended up the same same way so um that's that's you know one of those i think that's a really great story to share because i
1: think so often as midwives we do get very caught up mm. in the normal birth it's all got to be normal but as we know not all babies come out normally the most important thing is you have a mm. healthy outcome mm. which is where i think we get a little bit sidetracked sometimes mm. so she actually feels like she got a very healthy outcome both emotionally mm. and physically yes because she she actually was the decision maker mm. and I, th- I do believe and i think you'll agree with me that this is sometimes where we go a little bit wrong with the decision making taken mm-hmm. out of people's hands and often and labor is not the time to be making decisions which goes mm-hmm. back to that whole continuity of care mm-hmm. models and it's great for that but we don't have that in every situation we we use the word advocate a lot and yes. i do think that that word is a great word but i i find that some of my junior colleagues sometimes don't really understand what they need to do to be a good consumer advocate. So could you enlighten them a little bit or what's you in your experiences?
0: Yeah, well, look, you know, it's not always easy. We're in a patriarchal kind of system. And when you're young and new and... um maybe don't have the experience or the confidence to sort of stand up for your um, consumers. It can be quite a intimidating situation. But I think, you know, what I would say is that you listen to the woman. Listen and know what they want and, you know, what she and her family want and be confident to just repeat their wishes, you know. So, well, thank you for that if you know thank you for that advice you know we'll take a little bit of time here to discuss and we'll we'll get back to you with our decision rather than being sort of put on the spot or being encouraged really i suppose to sort of stick with the the medical decision it's not always a medical decision sometimes it's a midwifery decision from senior midwives you know say so we should be doing this now and i recommend we do this but if you know what your woman actually wants you can just sort of like take a minute say thank you for that we'll just have a chat about it get back to you with um, our decision and then repeat what the woman wants on her behalf I guess I have an awful lot of consumers that are quite happy to speak for, for themselves but you know in in sort of the mainstream that's not always the case because they've not had the antenatal experience of you know building the confidence and being informed and having all of the education so that they're pre-prepared to consider information and ask the questions but I always you know um, encourage women and midwives actually to always ask the doctor or the midwife to say well okay thanks for that but what are the alternatives what if we don't do anything and we just wait and you know can you sort of clarify the risks for us you know what what is that you know can you quantify that in some way i'm trying to sort of think off the top of my head an example say like for um a large gestational age baby yeah they've been for an ultrasound scan usually an ad hoc one because they've had a bit of reduced movements or something uh and it comes back babies got a large abdomen and we have, you know, there's certain clinicians that would say recommend induction at 39 weeks by 39 weeks because it's going to be a big baby and you could have a shoulder dystocia most women will hear that and think oh i've got a huge baby on board and i could have a shoulder dystocia so yes i'll have an induction without actually really understanding that ultrasound scans can be highly inaccurate that the chances of shoulder dystocia are actually quite small even with a large baby the fact that we're all actually really highly trained to manage a shoulder dystocia should they should it occur and they don't ask those questions like what are the actual you know truly what are the risks and you know that's the kind of situations that women are put in every day and I think is one of the reasons that we've got you know increasingly high induction rates and so what you know what i often do is because the women have invested a lot of time and energy and often money into preparing for a natural birth and they don't want an induction i sometimes tell them just go and have a read of evidence-based birth they do some real good balanced research-based consumer information on that website and they go away and they have a read and they come back and go yeah but the risk is small and it's just you know shoulder dystocia so they might not go in the bath for that reason but there's no reason why they just can't wait for things to happen naturally and still birth in the environment that they want to be in.
1: I think that's a great answer and certainly the question the way you pose those questions and I think it's the the asking why are we doing this and I think for the midwives mm-hmm. listening if you're ever asked to do something I, the thing I always teach junior is, is ask the question why mm-hmm. if you can't answer that yourself then you need to go and develop Mm -hmm. that conversation with whoever's asked Mm -hmm. you that question as to why you're actually doing something. I think an example for me and and your smile at this is, you know, the women coming into the main system, it is in examine them, do their observations, do a monitoring and, and next stage. And I can remember when I was first... Working here, I was asked why I hadn't examined somebody. Well, I hadn't actually really assessed her properly because I needed to spend time with her and assess her contractions. So I think there is that it is sometimes they got caught up in that process that we yeah. we end up in the in the main system. And if nothing else, I think we can encourage our juniors to just sit back sometimes and think, why am I doing this? Mm. It's a really good question. But that was a great answer because you talked a little bit about fear. Mm. And what that does to people? What's been your experience of when people are very fearful about coming in to labour? What do you find happens with those women? Well,
0: labours sort of wane, don't they? When somebody's afraid, what happens is the adrenaline takes over and it subdues the oxytocin, that is the hormone that they need to feel safe and confident and helps contractions. So you very often, even you know, even in the birth centre, sometimes when you know women are so excited and they've had a bit of a scary journey in the car on the way in, when they get the birth centre those contractions that have been you know three and ten for the last hour and a half sort of fizzle a little bit but it is it's about letting women be I think I, I like you it said you know the process but women are actually processed mm-hmm. in the main system you're quite right they come in you know these things happen to them vaginal examination observations you know transferred sent home given analgesia that is not conducive with having a successful labour really it's not you need to women need to be in a calm, quiet, dimly lit space surrounded by people that care for her and so you needs to feel loved you know that's what gets oxytocin going um so very often when women come into the birth center they're usually in good labor and if it's sort of fizzled out a little bit I will just leave them alone in there you know I'll do a set of observations we'll palpate up the contractions have a little listening and then I'll just say you know just set yourself up have a rest have a drink have a cup of tea have a shower whatever you want settle yourself in and then I'll go back and then usually within an hour things have started to heat up again because they've settled down the oxytocin's back up the adrenaline has settled and you visibly you can you you can see this happening
1: obviously your birth centers are very much a uh, like a home from home environment so mm-hmm. it does have a great feel about it how can we kind of improve our environment in a, in a main system where we've got to be able to deal with high-risk women as well as low-risk mm. women? How would you prep if you were taking somebody, say, into a birthing room that's not a birth centre style to get it to be less confronting for them and for their families
0: yeah well i guess i just all the same things that we do you know i do in the birth center so i you know i tell um women to bring in things that are going to make them feel comfortable so whether that's like a pillow from home whatever they want to wear you know i have women that have their birthing dress that they come in and they and they bring it for all that you know all their um, labors they wear the birthing dress or it might be a sarong or something that they feel comfy in to bring it like Aromatherapy or that they're like. We've got diffusers and things you know, so we can make the room smell familiar. And again, you know, sometimes if they, if they don't need the bed, so if they're not on epidural and they want, you know, want an active birth, push the bed out of the way and bring out the mat into the middle of the floor and the beanbag and the ball. All of these things are available in um, the main birthing suite as well as in the birth centre. Utilise the shower. Water is an incredible pain reliever. It works extremely well. Dim the lights. Get some gentle music going. All of these sorts of things that are just going to help the natural oxytocin to bubble up and get things going. Yeah.
1: We touched on that lady who comes in and doesn't get going and you, yeah. you've explained that you leave people for an hour. Mm. I mean, I've had the ladies who have two or three hours and you're still going, oh, shall I send her home again? Yeah. What sort of things, other strategies can you put in place to try and re-establish labour if things, say, after a couple of hours she's really not contracting and you're thinking, mm, you know, this lady's overdue, I need to mm. really sort of get things going in. What sort of things have you done in the past? What so, do you think helps?
0: Well, so we, can do, we, we use some aromatherapy oils, or, you know, clary sage, like a massage with, you know, some clary sage can work wonders. Nipple stimulation Mm. is uh, absolutely proven to work, you know. Sometimes, you know, even get the breast pump out sometimes but just rolling the nipples works wonders for getting contractions going we can do some pressure points as well you know that can help there's spots on the feet like the little toes and the back of the heel that can help with uterine contractions too and i've used things you know pressure points to avoid putting syntosin on up in the second stage and and it and it works you know it does definitely work so those sorts of things you know you can implement as well just you know getting people moving going for a walk those sorts of things can all so sort of get things to heat up without having to go straight to the drug put cupboard and get the oxytocics out you can try other things first mm. i think something that always sits with me and i learned this many many years ago
1: is the you know the primate Gravid who's been in labor for probably you know overnight mm. hasn't really eaten since the night before they arrive you know three four o'clock in the morning they've been contracting really important about testing their urine because if mm. they're dehydrated that often is part of what the problem is so do you agree with me that trying to get them yeah. to sure they're not ketotic and then yeah. getting them to have little sips of fluid and even something to eat because we don't run a marathon without mm. energy and we are about to run a marathon probably backwards actually for your first first labor and mm. birth so that whole simple strategies i think we've kind of forgotten how to do that i think in the way i've often Certainly. seen colleagues sending women on the stairs which i think is you know another good one is mm. sending them for a walk around mm-hmm. stomping doing the squatting positions i know that one of our colleagues who's now retired used to do a lot of that and it work. it does mm. work mm. if it means we're going to prevent intervention it's a good philosophy yeah
0: so i sometimes actually you know i absolutely agree that they, they are running on empty sometimes if they've been you know in early labor all night or for 24 hours Hours beforehand, so I often send them down the stairs to level one to get something sweet, and I get into crab walk. All the way down because that can help rotate the head and stuff as well into a more optimal position for birthing. So, so you, um, can you yeah. just explain to the listeners what you mean by a crab walk? Because they're probably sideways, all imagining. Yeah. So hold the banister and sideways walk. Yeah, down the stairs, Bluey. <laughs> 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 we do the crab walk. Yeah. So I, I get them to do that, and that can be quite helpful as well. Particularly, I find it yeah you know, really helpful with multies. You know, they can sometimes go off the boil, and it, just yeah, just doing that. That's a lot of stairs it, down to level one. It is. It is a lot of stairs. So they do have to come up the stairs? And no, they, they can the use the lift. lift to come back up. <laughs> but definitely I send them down
1: the stairs. Excellent. Mm. I'm sure you've had the experience of the client who does really well, labours beautifully. You've explained you one, the lady who had the cesarean section, mm-hmm. but has slow progress. And again, mm. we have a bit of a clock on us at times mm-hmm. and being faced with possible augmentation, possible intervention that they maybe don't want. Mm. Um You've talked about some strategies. What sort of things have you implemented in those labours where women are actually probably, you know, six centimetres and are getting slow progress? What sort of things have you done to try and expedite? You've talked about pressure points and things. Anything else you can explain or Um, give examples of?
0: Well, I mean, I guess, you know, if we have somebody that's labour has stalled, we go, you know, you go back to your clary sage and your massage and all the rest of it, then we can do rupture membranes, do a good membrane sweep and see how um, that works. Sometimes, you know, it's because the baby's not perhaps in the most optimal position. So I've been learning some like spinning babies techniques and things like shaking the apple tree so you're just sort of shaking their their legs during a contraction and the head can often if it's a bit asynclitic can sort of settle into a more optimal position that way. I've learned to do a bit of rebozo as Mm. well and I've found that that works pretty well. Can you just explain that to the listeners so So some people might not know what you're talking about? Yeah, so rebozo is actually a Mexican, very old technique that midwives in Mexico use and it's a very long shawl but you can use it in different positions and you're really just shifting, difficult when you can't see but you're sort of just jiggling, jiggling the, the, the abdomen and you know, between contractions, sometimes with contractions and it and it helps the baby get into a more optimal position for birthing. How do the women deal with that when they're contracting? Are they okay with it? They like it. They like yeah. it. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> they quite like it. Yeah. yeah, and like the head down, bum up position mm. is fantastic. You know, it drops the head out of the pelvis so that when they come up again, hopefully it will have settled into to a better position as well. So that kind of thing, we do a lot. Certainly I use a lot more of those techniques now. I think working the last couple of years in the birth centre because it's so focused on supporting women to achieve an actual birth, I've learned a huge amount. So, you know, I've been a midwife a very long time, but you never ever stop learning. And I've Yeah, you know, applied so many different techniques. And now, when I have a woman that does need to go to the birth suite, we still employ all of those techniques. And I assure them, you know, we'll still try and make this as natural and an experience as possible, even if you've got a monitor on and you've got a drip going. You know, we can still go in the shower, be upright. You don't have to be laying on the bed and, you know, or have an epidural if you don't want one. And I assure them that they can labor with Syntosin on without an epidural, you know, absolutely.
1: Uh, They totally can. Mm. I think something you said which really rings true with me is, you know, doing that rupture of membranes at the right moment. Mm. Teach people that that's your ace card. You need to Mm. keep it up your sleeve because it's the one thing you can do that can bring Mm. back labour if if you have stalled. The whole ARM thing because the woman's dilated is if she's contracting, why are we doing it? It's back Mm. to that question of why am I actually doing this? Is it actually essential? So I think that's a great one to hold on to. I think Mm. often people talk to women about if you rupture the membranes, it's going to shorten your labour. Blah, blah, blah. But we know, we both know that that's not necessarily the case. There are situations where you have to do a rupture of membranes, but I think it's from the normal labour who's low risk don't do it leave it alone Come back and watch yes sit on your hands is yeah. the best one yeah. um, and again I think from because a lot of people come from into midwifery from a nursing perspective mm. they very much into that got to be doing all the that's time right. I certainly learnt as a midwife in a midwife led unit that's where I learnt to sit on my hands mm. and actually not do anything and I heard a GP obstetrician actually from Stanthorpe one day teaching some junior doctors here at CSDS this is a while ago he said listen to the midwives sit in the corner and be quiet and mm. I thought awesome because that's absolutely true you need to sit and watch and I don't think we do enough sitting and watching anymore
0: we definitely don't there's you know it's yeah, like I say, it's, it, it, women are processed and they're on the clock the minute that they get in there. I mean, and I find like with second stage as well, you know, I'd, I don't do a vaginal examination to confirm it. I just watch the woman, you know, and I let her just do her thing. And, you know, if she's been like involuntarily pushing for 20 minutes, half an hour, and there's like no sign of a baby's head, then, you know, and it's her first baby, then, you know, then maybe I'd, I'd be considering doing a vaginal examination so she's not pushing on an undilated undil- cervix. But generally you can see, you just watch and you can see that they're fully dilated, you know. You can see that show, the purple line comes up the back, the change in the um, behaviour, the noises that are coming out. I, I really get um, frustrated when I hear midwives telling women to be quiet and hold their breath and, you know, roar your baby out, <laughs> you know, just do it. That's what we're meant to do. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with
1: with that and I think that whole I can remember working with a student a couple of years ago, and, and I actually said to her, We ought to just open our bits and pieces. And she looked at me very strangely mm. because I was watching this lady mm. doing nothing, I was just sitting watching, and she, after we had a baby, it was her second yeah. baby fairly quickly after that, mm-hmm. and she said to me. What did you see? Oh, well, I saw that transition from the behaviour. Yeah. But because we do use drugs and we do use epidurals in quite large quantities, midwives are not experiencing mm-hmm. that change in our women. So being able to recognise that, and that was a really good example of looking for all those signs. Mm-hmm. And there is no need to do another internal examination mm-hmm. unless you don't have any sign that this baby's coming. So I agree with you. I always say to people this is very primeval. It's back to the animal kingdom and we are part of that. Yeah. And that's why, you know, if we had choice, we'd probably go in a cave where it's dark and it's secure and it's warm mm-hmm. so we need to make our environment like that as well you talked a little bit about optimum fetal position mm. and i think op labors seem to be increasing whether that's because we're not as fit we don't get down on the floor and scrub our floors anymore and we use we sit in our chairs what sort of things have you tried to actually improve that position because i think that does often cause awful problems for midwives trying to improve yeah that position. so
0: well antenatally um but I've, i have Joe in my team who is the spinning babies guru mm-hmm. and you know I've learned a lot from from her experience and education as well but we tend to give women like exercises to do you know lots of head down bum up sort of stuff lunges left side lying release all of these things have been shown to really encourage that baby to rotate into an anterior position before labour you know and in labour we continue to do those types of things to encourage that baby around we actually you know we don't have very very many op labors from our cohort of women recently since we've been implementing these exercises antenatally and i know it's you know it's only ante- anecdotal we haven't done like a, a study on it but the women also feel that they're doing something and it gives them confidence that you know that stuff's going to happen if they do this stuff it, it'll all be okay you know rather than being told oh well, your baby's posterior so this is going to be a long painful backachy type of labor and you say right well that's okay well just do these things and and it does seem to work. <laughs> I've got a question here about what would be some of the best props you'd put in a bag if you were actually going to
1: want to keep things that certain things <sighs> that you think are the best things you can oh, use. right.
0: Well, I've always got – I always have clary Sage in the bag. So it's – you know, great pain relief, as I've said before. But the women feel relaxed, you know. If you've got the lights off in the shower, they're in that water and they're just in that quiet, dark space, comfortable as they can be in labour. And, yeah, I can't put that in a bag, but definitely I would want it on hand all the time. What else would I have in my bag? I think I would have a TENS machine. We don't... I I really strongly encourage women, yeah, to invest, borrow, beg. Not steal uh, a TENS machine, particularly first time mums who quite possibly will have, you know, a longer latent phase of labor. It really helps them rest at home and keeps them at home until they're in really good established labor. And, you know, I use them a lot in the UK. Women use them a lot. Not so much here, but they're having a bit of a resurgence. And I think Aldi had a bit of an offer on recently (laughs) where they were about $40 or something like that. So definitely a TENS machine as well. You don't need to have, like a a, a rebozo scarf but just a sheet something like that you know just little things like that something that you know for massaging
1: I honestly think we could talk forever so I'm very mindful of the time so I think what we'll do is I had a few more questions but I I think what would be really good is to have a second series of this around normal labour and birth because there's so much we could talk about Mm. but from today's discussion what would be maybe one or two key take-home messages to our listeners so that they have something that you think is really Mm. important as a midwife?
0: Education. I think educating and empowering your women to be in control and involved in the decisions that are being made around their care, making them feel that they are... In control, definitely, and they're the centre of it. It is not just about having a live baby at the end of pregnancy. It's how we get there that is important, and the women are central and in control of everything that is happening to them for sure so i think that's maybe not just one point but several and i think just trust women trust women to birth their babies they can do it you know we haven't changed that much in the last 10 years that we've suddenly become disabled around childbirth and we can't do it anymore i think we just um you know need to trust women stand back and watch and you'll see that they you know they're able to give birth without all of the Bells and whistles and interventions that seem to be employed in the majority of births these days.
1: Sounds great. So I think I'll just recap on some of our discussion today, if that's okay. Some of the things we've talked about is maintaining normality when intervention is required. And I think your example around the lady who had the cesarean section was a fantastic one to talk about. How continuity of care models can be, we need to increase those. And it's obviously, you're very passionate about that Mm -hmm. and so am I. And hopefully in the next few years, we will see more MGPs, which I think is probably the answer for those higher risk women. And how we can support clients making their decisions when there are difficult choices to make. It's not easy and it's definitely not the best Time when somebody's labouring. So that antenatal period is so, so important. How to improve our environment to assist the, the birth process. You've talked about calm, quiet music, just even in our bigger birth suite environments, you can make that work. And how to be a good advocate for our clients. We're there to support them, we're there to make sure things are safe. I often say I'm like your guide for the day. I'm not here to tell you what to do, but I'm here to guide you. And how to bring the deviating labor back to a normal track before it's too far off the track that mm. we can't actually do that. And the good props, I think that was Really good to say what you put in your bag. It's certainly a challenging environment being a midwife today. I've seen a big change in the time I've been mm. a midwife, but we have to move with the times and we have to work with the skills that we have and the and the cohorts of women and staff that we have as well. So for our listeners, have you you talked about a website early Any good examples of anything you'd think would be good for people to read or anywhere to to go that you think would be excellent for yeah, them?
0: So evidence-based birth is, is a really good website that I really like. There's some really good stuff there that's just written very it's very simple language um but it's packed full of the evidence and it's just very unbiased and i like that spinning babies is a great website as well you can just register interest with them and they'll send you all sorts of you get a little tips on emails of different things that you can do where else do I go there's just trying to think can you think of any soon? there's so many out there there that's that's all
1: right two (laughs) two is fine and if you think of any more you can always send them to me and we can actually post them on the website but Mm. I think that's amazing and I just want to say a big thank you for your time today Mm. and it's been great like I said I think we could have spoken for a lot lot longer um And certainly I think we will revisit this topic again because it's something we need to build on. And um, yeah, the the maternity education programme, as we said, is is building a podcast with all sorts of things. So if you think of anything or your colleagues, then we'd be very happy to continue with the podcast. So thanks again. Thanks for having me. uh, That's really good.